I am Connor McCloud of the Clan McCloud, and I am immortal. Here we are. a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramius, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello, and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast, to our knowledge, uh, devoted to breaking down the 1986 cult classic Highlander, scene by scene. As always, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it's a pleasure to be here. And once again, we are joined by our dear friend, uh, Mr. Ian Bird. Hello there, thank you for having me. And would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, I thought I'd already done it. Did I not? I wasn't listening to anything you said. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for the I'm, I'm going to assume I introduced myself. <laughs> it's um, a podcast, I don't listen to anybody else. There's still that noise going on. When is it going to be quiet so I can talk? Seriously, spend this money on therapy. <laughs> It'll be a lot happier. <laughs> In case uh, I haven't introduced myself, my name is Rob Wallace, and today we are going to be discussing uh, the first of the film's amazing scene transitions from the underground parking garage of Madison Square Garden up into Scotland, and the uh, the brief moment succeeding that between Connor and his kinsman. So roughly 10 minutes 58 through to 12 minutes 47. You make a very good point there, because... This is the first transition in the film because when he was watching the wrestling, they were flashbacks, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, it's kind of like complete cuts. Yeah. But it does match it because you've got the, the quick cuts in the wrestling ring to what's going on. And speaking of, did you mention when you talked about the wrestling, did you talk about how the wrestlers look like Boris Johnson? No. But <laughs> <laughs> just look at those wrestlers. They're just great big, dumpy fellows with enormous bubble blocks. Like, fucking hell, it's the Prime Minister. Just had Donald Trump in the car park. <laughs> All of British American politics is accounting. <laughs> oh, well, yes, yes, you're absolutely right. So here we have the... It's a very, very good transition from present day to olden times. I mean, you literally jump back 450 years in a single camera move. How does that happen, Rob? Connor has just, to give it a bit of context, uh, dumped the sword, his katana, on kind of a platform above at the top of the, top of the parking garage. Kind of like a... I couldn't work out what it was either. It's like it's, a raised thing. It's like the ventilation. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like a, exactly. Um, um, on the assumption, presumably, that the police aren't going to look there. Yeah, because <laughs> no one looks up in New York. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, that's because if you go up in New York, as the scene establishes, you pass through the ceiling and arrive in medieval Scotland. Yes. <laughs> and it's interesting because last night you said, does this film have the best scene transitions in film history? And it's like, well... That's an interesting point, because, of course, there are really, really famous ones, like there's the match being blown out in Lawrence of Arabia that, that then cuts to the desert. And 2001, there's the bone being thrown up in the air that then cuts to, um, I think it's supposed to be some kind of weapon, isn't it? It's like an orbiting space weapon. Yeah. Um, it's it's the, the, no, it's not an orbiting. Um, doesn't it become the shuttle? It's heading towards the space station. No, no, it's, um, it's actually an orbiting space laser. Oh, right. Oh, that makes an awful lot more sense in context. Well, yeah, because Arthur C. Clarke said no one picked up on the fact that that's actually supposed to be a weapon because you're supposed to have seen the first, first weapon, weapon being used. The weapon. And then, yeah, so it's, uh, but no one, because it's never really explained and it just looks like a spaceship, but it's supposed to be an orbiting laser cannon. Um, and and that's not a millionaire on a spaceship. 
space private space flight. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look like a big cop. <laughs> but I always because I remember reading about that shot of the bone being thrown up in the air and it just being talked about as the best transition in film history. So when I saw it, it's a little bit disappointed because no highlighter is it? Well that's the thing because it was like, as a kid it was like I thought it would be a bit cleverer than that. It's just a cut and of course that is the brilliance of it that you can do a cut and jump hundreds of thousands of years and it's like um but here it's like well the ones in this film do move through things and they do do like a graphic match and stuff like that and there is a there is like a color scheme that is matched from the present day to the past and that kind of stuff so it was like hmm, i prefer these ones well actually i guess part of the thing that's really nice about this transition is i guess actually the color contrast because you're moving from sort of the gray slightly dingy cathonic mm-hmm. cathonic it's very cathonic, you're right. Very cathonic, yeah. yeah. Through to what the that mean? <laughs> it's like Stygian, <laughs> subterranean. It's, it's like it's a big tentacle monster, isn't it? Who lives outside of yeah. <laughs> you think of an octopus. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Rob. Uh, through to the kind of vibrant highland, you know, there's that more sort of wonderful rich greens and and also the score. The score goes from kind of being I think when we were talking when we were watching it, you said a little bit like the shining. I've never noticed that until we just watched the clip just before we started to record this that when it moves up through the level you kind of get that sh- that shriek the high-pitched kind of shrill choir voice and it's like oh that, that is a bit like the shining it's a nice sound to accompany the visuals as it as it goes back in time And then, mm. then, like the more sort of triumphant note of Michael Kamen's score kicks in, with yeah. the, and there's the touch of the bagpipes to it, and, and you sort of the McLeods crossing the bridge, going from what's the name of the castle? I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna mispronounce it. I've always said it's Eileen Donnan. Eileen Donnan, uh, and then yeah, the McLeods are going to war. Mm. So it goes from from a battle scene of a very old soul um, to his first day of combat as a warrior, and yes, he. Uh, Speaks obviously speaks with more of a Scottish accent in this bit, which is something that your son picked up on, didn't he? Because he watched. Oh yes, I watched it with my son, and uh, it was like he just loved. Oh, he doesn't speak the Scottish accent in in the future. His accent's been changed by the places he's been. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. It's a lovely character note, isn't it? um, It's easy to make fun of the accents in this film, (laughs) so let's do it. Um, (laughs) As we said, as we said on the most recent pod. Christopher Lambert essentially learned English for this. He's got such a wonderful delivery, and you get the sense that I don't want to sort of take it away. It's because he's brilliant in this role. He's absolutely brilliant. Potentially, a bit of it is helped by the fact that he's not reading lines in his first language. So, bits that stand out. My dad, for example, hated the line, ha, whatever you say, Jack, you're a master race. And it's like, it's a weird line that's out of kilter. And part of the reason why it's out of kilter is because it's someone saying it in their second language. It's, but it's brilliant. It has such a great effect. <laughs> Whatever you say, Jack, you're the master race. It's a whole thing. <laughs> Everything he says is done, it's like it's taken a conscious choice how to say these lines. Yeah, it's, um, so when we get into this scene, yeah, to your point, Rob, it's, uh, so the colour scheme is very different and it's shot during the day, so it's the first time we see the sun. Beautiful blue sky. Absolutely, yeah. And it, it's this amazing location that they've found that you were saying, Ian, was then used a lot for a while. You notice it everywhere. So you mentioned the James Bond thing. Yeah, it's in the world is not enough. It's it's where they um, they go for the meeting for the funeral. Yes, isn't it? 
but it's like the BBC used it as their station, their channel ident for a while as well. But you just notice it. It's that really distinctive. This is the keep at water, the really prominent bridge that links it to the mainland. It's yeah, you, you start to notice it. Well, we drove past it. So I was on a trip around Scotland for for about a month, a million years ago, and driving from here to there. And look out the window, and that's the Highlander Castle. We just drove past the Highlander Castle. And we're from, yeah, it's Island Don and Castle, really famous everywhere. It's like, right, okay, excellent. That's 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 awesome, isn't it? The um there's a really good thing in this because we've so we've talked about on the previous episodes how there's a lot of things happening here, and the film doesn't worry about having to explain everything at the very beginning. Um, although you have had the title card of yeah, which Sean's saying this is kind of the story. But the there's a nice bit of dialogue when the it is the priest, isn't it, who's leading them into battle, or the like, you know, the mm-hmm. holy man is leading them in into battle, and he says, "May the year of our Lord fourteen thirty six. Fifteen thirty six. Fifteen thirty six. Sorry. Um, What's the century like, between friends? Yeah, <laughs> and it's like that. Lots of different mistakes. <laughs> Lots of different mistakes. <laughs> and it's like, well, that that's again, it's like it's an incidental character saying it, but it's beginning to nail down the different frames that this movie's going to operate in, and it's just very, very nicely done. But it's also done on the move, so it's that thing where you don't stop to tell a story, you're always on the move, and it's, um, yeah, it's just a really, again, a really good example of how kinetic this film is, and how it will give you the information you need, but it never does it in a boring way where it'll just stop and Tracking shot, tracking shot, tracking shot, dolly. It's awesome. You guys are going to talk about it in the future, but I'm mentioning it here. When they're talking about, how did it happen, for God's sake? And Sean Connery's, nobody knows. Why does the sun come up in the morning? Or are the stars just pinholes in the curtain of night? It's like, just an artful way of saying it's a mystery. It's not like it's badly plotted. It's a mystery. There are mysteries. That's well, what we've, all, we've, is. we've already discussed the dangers of explaining it. Oh god, yeah, because otherwise you wind up with nonsense like they're aliens, or it was planet Earth all along, or yeah. is the devil, or well, the thing there is like yeah, it's like yeah, Groundhog Day never says why it's happening. It's mm. one of those things where it just it's just happening, and it's it's the same thing here. The best films always say, look, this is it's kind of like this is not real anyway, so we're just going to say this is another mystery of the world. But it plays to an idea. It's like you, you guys mentioned it, that Gregory Wyden's idea for it came by looking at a suit of armour, looking at swords and wondering if the person who used them was still alive today. Yeah. It's always the thing of why, if you, what if you didn't die? What if you were really old? And those, that, that wonderful sense that just is a little bit narcissistic, but also very much romantic. And it's this, it's a really lovely image, like the Flying Dutchman, um, uh, the Wandering Jew, these ideas of incredibly old people knocking around in the background. Yeah. It's a lovely idea. Well, it's why it's why Connor at the end, when he wins the prize, wins his, his mortality, essentially, and the rich dad kids. And, because otherwise, it's just five billion years in the future, the sun is going supernova, the earth is a scorched rock, and Connor <laughs> Cloud's just sat there, the last person unable to die. Well, this is it, isn't it? Because it's you lose track of the humanity of the story when you start going into space. It's like somehow, yeah. somehow I'll buy, yeah, this character is 450 years old, but he's living in the real world. Not, this guy is now 12,000 years old, and he's living in a weird future with flying cars and the planet Zeist. It's like, <laughs> it, it shreds the verisimilities. It's, it's the man, it's the man who fell to work, not the man who went to space. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Um, so the, another thing here, of course, is that we see a young Connor, which they seem to have achieved by shaving off the 80s designer stubble and putting a wig on him. And actually, 
Yeah, putting two older-looking men next to him as well. So and he looks happy, which I mean, and he looks happy. Oh, yeah, he's also he's... got that wonderful pride thing about yeah, him. Absolutely. Whereas yeah, when you've just seen him, he's he's kind of like he's tense, he's ruminative, he's brooding, he's kind of like got this furrow brow. Mm. And this is him as a lighter character. Plus, he's wearing a kilt, so you're seeing his knees. It's like you never see male characters' knees. Yeah, you know? it's point. like they're always wearing trousers, and it's like this is kind of like this boyishness about him. Really, really fetching. It's gorgeous, aren't it? He is incredibly gorgeous in this film. And we were talking about the fact that the first proper exchange of dialogue between the characters is about peeing your kilt when you go into battle. Are you scared, Connor? <laughs> no, Cousin Dougal, I'm not. <laughs> Don't talk nonsense, man. I peed my kilt the first time I went into battle. Aye, <laughs> Angus pees his kilt all the time. <laughs> With your point about pride is that, yeah, he is incredibly prideful because he wants to show that he is a man and he's not afraid, but he's clearly very young compared to the people that he'll be going into battle with. Um, Born in 1518, isn't he? And this is 1536, so he's 18 years old. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so he's just become a man. It's um, His two kinsmen, Dougal and Angus, are played by Billy Hartman, who <laughs> was on uh, was on Emmerdale, apparently, for years and years and years. You know, oh. uh, uh, British, uh, well, Scottish actor, actually a Scottish actor, um, and James Cosmo, who actually, again, is Scottish, who, who we probably best know him for Game of Thrones. He was leader in the Night's Watch. He's literally in everything. He's literally in everything, yeah. I watched a good horror film called The Kindred with him in it um, recently. And, yeah, and it's, it's a, it's a low-budget horror film, and he's in it. And he just seems to be one of those, one of those actors that will do things that just interest him um and he crops up in everything but it's like he's in braveheart and train spotting so yeah that's right yes he's um it's his mcgregor's dad isn't he uh yeah one year after the other yeah kind of the i could be two of the films that when you say oh scotland that people go oh braveheart or train spotting that's the kind of one's good yeah and the other one's braveheart yeah yes how are we going to go off topic there but it's very important to address that we need to establish this um He's also, because he's a guy, it's always funny with him because you think he could easily have played bruisers, but he is just so avuncular when you see him mm. that he just, he's just such a good, reassuring screen presence for the heroes. But also there was a, there was a series he did that was set on an oil rig during the 90s, and it was always on the BBC bloopers show. Because he's a real giggler when he gets the giggles. <laughs> and it's really funny. There was one scene where he had to walk into a, an office and say, Gov, something's happened. And every time he walked in and saw the guy, he had to talk to him. He just started giggling. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I can just see that you'd be like a real giggler. When something tickles you, you just won't be able to stop laughing. And it was so funny. You know one of those things when you, it's infectious watching someone laugh. Yeah. He's got that sort of laugh where he's just, his whole face just, crumpled with mirth. Isn't it kind of like if you're that physically confident, you don't need to be a swaggering alpha. You can have like that sense of irony and glee and joy and it's just Yeah, indeed, definitely. Yeah. And that's um but yes, I think most people now would know him as and what was he was he the head of the Night's Watch or something? Yes, yeah, yeah, the head of the yeah. Night's Watch. Um and it's really nice that the the first proper dialogue in this, I mean the the first three words in the film are McLeod, Fazil, Wait and then we get McLeod again, because it's them, them <laughs> McLeod. And then we just get them having a really nice brief exchange about peeing your kilt. <laughs> Go on, Amy, you can do it. 
thank God. I've, I peed myself a little while ago. Don't worry. I don't need to do it again. Right. I mean, yeah, Ian pees his cunt all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to listen to this and stop. I hope they go, oh, God. Oh, God, we hope. <laughs> oh, we hope, yeah. It's, it's, don't worry. We, we can geolock it, I'm sure. Yeah. I spend so much of my time explaining to my children why they shouldn't do impressions of Apu in The Simpsons. <laughs> right. <laughs> but no, it is, um, yes, it is a really good way to introduce them. Um, pricking pomposity. It is, yeah, that's right, yeah. What else is it doing? It's it's humour, isn't it? It's camaraderie. It's friendly. And it's also such a contrast from the scene that's just gone before. And the one that's going to come afterwards as yeah. well. Plus, while they're talking about this and they're all marching down, it's like you've got gibbets with skeletal remains and dead birds hanging on. It's like, yeah. it's not entirely unambiguous what's going on here. I mean, yeah, I, I, we've had a brief discussion before this that I'm not entirely convinced that all the birds are dead. Yeah, David Attenborough here thinks that those are living <laughs> birds that are strung upside down. <laughs> some of the birds swinging slackly in the breeze. Some of the birds, <laughs> their wings dangling. Some of the birds seem to be like protesting. So much lank hair. There seems to be movement that's not entirely based on <laughs> the wind. I think it's a windy day, Rob. It's um, and also I think because we were talking about the fact that there's a very nice mist that's going across the lock that's next to the castle, and then that's probably um, a smoke machine. So therefore, I think it might be. I'm not. I think it might be the wind that's blowing the smoke from from the. You are doing an Norwegian I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm. I'm not saying that the production team on Highlander tortured some birds, it but they didn't. Because the why birds would they do? Why would they hang living birds? <laughs> and also, I don't, I don't know. Ian, why does anybody <laughs> do anything for kicks? <laughs> the fact that the birds are not flapping their wings and trying to get out of the thing that they're tied to. It's it was, the, it was the fifth take. <laughs> yeah, and they were knackered. That's right. Yeah. That parrot is definitely deceased. And when I bought it not half an hour ago, you assured me that its total lack of movement was due to it being tired and shagged out after a long squawk. They were alive. If, if, if they'd been out of get their pee kill all the timeline right first time, then they would have been vibrant birds flapping <laughs> yeah, around. around. <laughs> but actually, no. Yeah, they're, meant to be, they're not meant to be dangling. They're meant to be tethered. They're meant to be <laughs> performing. Yeah. I, just, I just think, Rob, on this will bless your heart. That, um, <laughs> that those birds have ceased to be. <laughs> <laughs> And that they're not because they would be flapping their wings. Right, but one's leg is it is moving. That's right. I mean, I will. I'll give you that. But I think that it might be the fact that there was probably like a wind machine or something that was blowing the mist might also be blowing the dead bird's leg as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listeners, please watch the scene and draw your own conclusions. Yes, please watch the scene. There's, there's, it's when it's it's the dolly shot when the holy man is basically saying in in the year of our Lord blah blah blah. You can see the gibbets and you <laughs> see the birds. And a bird's leg is moving, and it could be tapping its foot in time to the drum beat. That's right. <laughs> so the other great thing about this is that you can see the excitement of the extras mm. that are coming off the screen, and really adds to just how vibrant this scene is. It's a really well done scene in terms of there's a lot of extras there. There are horses. Everyone is costumed, obviously, and it's this amazing location they've got. And it, yeah, you can see that would be an exciting day's filming and that it would be the first assistant director probably would be the one who will be telling the crowds, the men are going off to battle. You are cheering them off. These are your heroes. So therefore, everyone's really excited by this. And kids, you'll be running to see the soldiers as they go off to war and this kind of stuff. So there's, you can see that there's a big event happening and it's really well directed with no dialogue. You mm. can see why everyone is quite excited by this. Yeah, so the, the establishing shot, the tracking shot comes in and he's, uh, there's a guy mending a fishing net, isn't there? There is all sorts of wonderful stuff going on in it. It's really well done. So brilliant. Um, but also, yeah, to the point that they're 
are bodies hanging from the bridge. It's like it shows that even though there's everyone's happy and excited, this is a violent culture that they're yeah. in, and yeah. it's it's basically just based on clan warfare. <laughs> well, this is it though, isn't it? Because I think the wonderful thing about Highlander is that we didn't grow up with Zorro, did we? We didn't we didn't grow up with Robin Hood, really. It's like mm. swords are lightsabers, but this is like people are hacking, and they use the way they hacking away with broadswords. These are barbarians, and they're in the modern day. And so you kind of like look back at it as going, oh, I remember Highlander. Highlander, a science fiction film, blah, blah, blah. It's like these, this is what if there were barbarian thunks wandering around in the modern day. But it's something to do brilliantly with the Kurgan. But it's also there with McLeod as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, although you see in later scenes a sense of honour about being a Highlander, and it's one of these. But also the, um, the sexism, the awesome chauvinism he's like, I don't know by God the last <laughs> thing he hears shall be not that really woman and he said go back to uh, Ronan was kind of like surprised uh, when Ramirez appears in front of McLeod for the first time and um, Connor says to Blossom to get back into the into the, the castle go in the house how stay right here do as I say woman <laughs> it's just this weird just that's the time <laughs> that's a really good point though they are being true to the time to the 1400s, 1500s, sorry. Um, but it's also true it to racism. It's the 16th century. It makes yeah. no sense. <laughs> no, no, it's just <laughs> baffling. <laughs> but it's also true to racist filmmaking that, yeah, the men are talking now. I mean, uh, yeah. There's a, there's a line, I mean, actually, Sean, there's a line. Oh, do we really want to bring up Sean in this context? <laughs> well, mm. no, but, but, but there's a line from Goldfinger where, um, is it Binks a name or something like that, where um, someone comes along, talk about a mission. The bond, and he says, "Right, off with your Binks man talk," and slaps her, and she goes, ah, and peters off. Dink, meet Felix Leiter. Hello. Felix, say hello to Dink. Hi, Dink. Dink, say goodbye to Felix. Hmm? Uh, man talk. Watching that for the first time recently, because I haven't seen it since I was a kid, it's like, what you disgrace? But it's like, yeah, man talk, and man talk is a, was a big thing in the eighties still. Um, so is it a good thing or a bad thing that the narrative flow of this film means that, because he's lived over such a long period of time, he can credibly have four partners. And so technically that's four female characters and therefore potentially twice as many female characters as a normal action film would have. Is that positive or is that even more? Well, I think that um, on the last episode you mentioned, or maybe when we were talking around it, but um, that the Brenda character doesn't look like another... It doesn't look like a sex kitten. But she's got the same... I was thinking this. Partly I think it's 80s filmmaking. But they've all got big, curly, sort of strawberry blonde hair. Yeah. It's kind of like... Everyone's got big hair because it's the 80s. But it is almost like, oh, he's got a type. Yeah, but, you know, I think the Bonnie Tyler had big hair. So I think the Russell Mulcahy's got a type. (laughs) Well, that's very good. (laughs) So, so yeah, if I just want her to to have the big hair... By the way, just so you know, every time we mention anything to do with Bonnie Tyler and things, there will be a very brief detail. I love that song, and that song is everything that's good about the 80s. <laughs> it's right, yeah, it's not bad. It's brilliant. Jim Steinman's songs are entirely what this film is about, apart yeah. from the literal sense, where there is very little connected tissue whatsoever. No, but you're right, this is, this is a meatloaf song put onto screen. <laughs> with a Queen soundtrack. Yes. <laughs> I was going to title this uh, this episode Pin Your Kilt, but it's probably now going to be titled Band Talk and Very Little Connected Dish of Whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not mastering it. 
<laughs> we would be no good in that light. He's running around over there wondering where it was. <laughs> Mr. Wallace is over there saying, Stay by me, laddie! Stay by me, laddie! <laughs> no! I'm over here. We've got digressions. We've got tangents to follow. I want to see where this stream goes. <laughs> Downhill. Down. Like all streams. <laughs> Talk about Highlander again. <laughs> so, is there anything else to talk about in this particular? Um, I think that, yeah. I, did you see Razorback? I saw Razorback, um, I think in 1990. It was on telly. Yes, that's right. And you probably saw the same that I did. And I remember it being good. I always wanted to watch it again because I've never seen it in widescreen. And apparently it's, it's very well shot. Because um, that's the thing, isn't it? It's that Australian horror movie thing that was going on at the time. You've got the big, wide open vistas, and that's what you've got in this film, which is ostensibly about modern day New York and concrete jungles. Suddenly, you've got this great, big, weird, epic scope of the outdoors, and it just reminds me of that. Oh, I guess that's it, then, isn't it? It's outback filmmaking again. Well, yeah, the, the, the final shot of this, of course, being the uh, the wide, so the almost the establishing shot of the castle, which with is, the mist blowing across. Well, it's very short bread tin, that, isn't it? That's like, um, oh, but the sea was gone. And it's good, it is. It, the, the Isle of Sky is right next yeah. to that. But it is that, that's picture postcard Scotland. But then literally the next shot is dank, Kurgan, terrible yeah. clouds, yeah. pouring rain, and brutal savagery. And it's like, you've got that, that switcheroo yeah. on the on what it means to be Scots. But the Razorback, do you, I remember it was the line of Tom and Tom talking about Razorback saying it was the best big pig movie ever made. Yeah, that's <laughs> a great <laughs> Time out might have said that. Yeah, I think it was like, the best big pig movie ever made. <laughs> Until Hannibal came out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there may now be um, competition from the new Nicolas Cage film. Oh, which King. apparently is really good. Have it's you seen it? Re- no, I have not, but it's meant to be very good. And they filmed in Scotland, which is not as common now. I think it was... I think it was cheaper to shoot in Scotland then than it is now. I think it's quite expensive to shoot there. Um, well, they actually shot fairly close to uh, the Isle of Skye, which is where the Clan MacLeod actually do historically come from. They were in the vicinity. I thought this, wow. this, this bore the hallmarks of an awful lot of historical research, I thought, this film. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were actually Kurgans, and they were very peaceful people. <laughs> it's just like, that's true. I that savage. I remember, like, as promised, I've not done any research for this podcast. I've seen it a trillion times. I refuse to learn anything more about it. But um, I remember reading up about it. It's like the Kurgans were just like Russian farmers. They children to hungry dogs to fight for meat. I go, what? No, we, we lovely people. We give to charity really? and we watch PBS. <laughs> but they found they think of Spartans. I think of Spartans. I was thinking of dickheads. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the historical the historical the dickheads exactly. it's, where, it's where we get the word dickhead from it's true it's, uh, actually that's a false cognate it's a complete coincidence the dickheads were very very kind people very empathic selfless I think this is probably the first time in history that the words dickhead and false cognate have ever been used in a sentence that's a great phrase that we use now a lot so what? So now it's um, uh, so now it's called uh, man talk, no connective tissue, and false cognates. <laughs> <laughs> but there was um, yeah when they were shooting the Dark Knight Rises, when they were scouting for locations, I think it was Christopher Nolan said yes, we're going to go to Scandinavia for this, and someone said yeah, Scotland looks kind of uh, similar and has amazing scenery, and they just didn't even consider that they could shoot there and shoot like a you know an amazing vista there, and it's like. And I didn't think it was Scotland at the beginning of the Dark Knight Rises because it just it 
it's not used as a location very much anymore. Well, it's a trillion years ago, before I'd gone to Scotland, I was very embarrassed about it. I was talking to this Canadian friend of mine. He says, it's just Canada. It's literally Canada. It's just been separated by millions of years. And it's just that, it's that, that same terrain. It's just oh. been spread across the Atlantic. Yeah, it's amazing. So, but well, on as a rule, Scotland has fewer French, except in this instance. Well, there's a, there's a lot of crossover, isn't there? Um, there's an awful lot of French in uh, Scottish. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I'm drawing on this partly from Billy Connolly routine, but yeah, um, you see a lot of slang or common words are French originated. Well, one half of my well, my surname Wallace is potentially a corruption of Wallace, but we've also got the other part of the family which has Mortimer as a um, as a middle name. Mortimer from Deadwater, which French which French Norman came over during Normans and was somehow. That's awesome. And what's also, yeah. I'd never put two and two together. Mortimer, Dead Sea. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Because they basically that. inherited a bunch of marshland when, I think, after the Norman invasion. I don't... I... That's really cool. Is there anything else about this scene? Uh, talk about the, the mist. Yeah, the mist probably being, we're assuming fake. I mean, it's too perfect. It looks just too... It looks too amazing, doesn't it? It's kind of all that people to set up and then suddenly start pouring with rain. <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow when the mist is better. Yes. So yes, I think this is a glorious way to transition from present day to olden times, and it just does it so well. With such confidence as well, the fact we're going to do it like this, and the score, as you said, is just so wonderful when it happens, and yeah, you've Enjoy basically it. gone from two two people trying to hack each other to pieces, or you know, knock their head off, to um, this wonderful scene of this community, and they're all you know, very happy and excited. And it remains happy, which I think is the nice thing. And nothing bad happens after this point. It's <laughs> yeah, just... Well, that's the thing, but, it's like, but they're happy and excited, but it's all based on violence still. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And yeah. It is that, it, it's starting to establish the sense that this is a man who's got an unusual way of looking at the world, that he's always got lots of history, that just and associations that are always around him, that everything's keyed to a memory. So obviously you've got other scenes coming up where he's remembering the rowing boat with uh, Ramirez when he's in, the, in his sanctuary and whatnot. It's, I mean, there's always a sense of the past behind him so there's always a sense fundamentally of sadness of having been the last one left standing yeah and he'd be so difficult to wrangle on the podcast i can't imagine what that would be like just about yeah somebody who just make endless segues i guess <laughs> <laughs> but there's uh and we have talked about it uh but let's just return to the fact that six weeks before they start shooting i'm not sure if it was this scene but six weeks before they start shooting Christopher Lambert couldn't speak English. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm sure he had a bit of English, but yeah, they basically said they had to teach him, or he had to learn how to speak English six weeks, while presumably also doing the sword stuff as well. I mean, it's, this is a really good performance. It overlooks, everyone just says, oh, it's the one where he does the really, really rubbish accent. But there's, mm. nah, there's a lot going on with his performance. He, This is the perfect role for him. And he could actually play the two different corners very well. It's like, you know, you know to your point, um... He's weighed down by history when he's having a fight with Bazile, and he's weighed down by you know, tragedy and heartbreak and all the experience. Whereas, and then we see him as an eighteen-year-old, and he's full of pride, and he thinks he's invincible, which it turns out he is, <laughs> but not in the way that he wanted to be. Um, yeah, and considering that he couldn't speak the language, he doesn't sound stilted. I mean, yeah, his accent. Later conversations. You guys are going to talk about it. You must make a point of talking about it. Any scene with Brenda, there's no through line in what they're talking about. Mm. And it is almost like all of his lines are standalone lines. It's not much conversation. It's like, I have a position point, you have a position point. They sell it because 
they're really convincing in terms of the mood that they're in. But you wouldn't look at when the scene where Brenda and McLeod have a date, for example, and say, this is what this guy's coming there to see. He's gone all this way just to tell her that he knows that she works for the police. Yeah. Like, and then he gets off in a half and leaves. So like, well, you knew that when you came here. So why did you suddenly get angry when you were charming? Because it's just it's an odd dimension. Wait a minute, Nash. I want some answers. You want? Don't you ever think about anything except what you want? There and is then, a version of this film, and again, I might save this for a future pod, seen from her perspective up to and including the date, where he's a fucking serial killer. Oh, well, yeah, well, oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. But then and her perspective is really interesting, and it, it gets thrown away, doesn't it? It's like, it will be like finding um, a Boeing 747 thousand years before the White Blood brother, Brothers ever flew. It's like, from that perspective, she's got an amazing through line, but she's only tangential, and then she gets so fascinated with him, she becomes part of his love story, and it's like, she loses agency. And what is despicable about the sequel, and it, I, I use that word deliberately, is that you find out she died very shortly after the events in Ireland. Killed in the car crash. Is that, it's like that is disgusting. That is some born identity bullshit. Like that. <laughs> the whole point, the film has meaning because it's, it's about human relationships. Even this thing, silly and gaudy and, and, and teenage, but fundamentally it's about first love and it's about falling in love and whatnot. So to suddenly say, well, I don't have means for that anymore, so I'm going to kill off the female character after the first film. It's, it's I mean, you almost get the impression it happened during their trip to Scotland. Oh, because it's so soon. And it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> it's awful. It's dreadful. That Like they drove away from that scene at the end with, you know, Peacock and you know, Fate mm. and the Lovely and Fade to Black and immediately got in a tragic car wreck. Yeah. Like... Like the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's absolutely, so it's absolutely it's awful. It's really, really dreadful. But, uh, yeah, so... But then, but, uh, around yeah. that point, because yes, because when he's having his conversation with Sean Connery, the camaraderie is absolutely evident, and you do get a sense like we are brothers. It's such a, it's an odd beast. I think he's basically playing it as being a very odd lunatic in the present day. <laughs> a very yeah he, he is playing a psychopathic who's <laughs> very very charming and very very well dressed so Dexter is one of the only psychopathic but the that's a good point though in terms of the lines of dialogue he has in this scene are quite short and you're thinking this is it's hard to be stilted when your dialogue is quite short so therefore when your lines are quite short you can and also it's easier to hold on to an accent when you've only got a few words it's when you have to carry on a conversation that it begins to wobble and go around. And... Maybe it's just it's a poorly written love story, but actually they sell it on the... Because it, it's odd, isn't it? Everyone remembers Sean Connery in this film, but have you seen it for like seven minutes? Yeah, he's not in a... He's not in, I can, that's he's, a really good point, actually. We would need to... Yeah, let's time how much he's on screen. Because it's barely, barely at all, isn't it? And then he's, he's, um, he dies at the end... At the end of Act One. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, he apparently uh, he was only shooting for three days. Oh, three days! Okay. Nice. Three days. I know there's the story about they had him for a week. I can't. I don't believe that. Uh, three days seems too low, doesn't it? Absolutely, because you've got like an action scene in there, and also you've got all the location scene where they go out on the lake, and then you've got the stuff on the beach and in the woods. It's like I mean, this is this is apparently from the Scottish Sun, <laughs> so I'm gonna. <laughs> It's called his son, which as the uh, as the the next scene, the changing weather in the next scene indicates, very is very unreliable. Yeah, it's got <laughs> oh, very <son>. good. <laughs> <laughs> Their lawyers will be in touch. But is there anything else anybody would like to discuss <laughs> about the scene? No, I mean I think as, as Ian said, it's well not for me, sorry, Ian, but um, as Ian said, this is 
we are talking about three Scotsmen walking across the bridge. There's <laughs> <laughs> only so much you say about that, but it's a really good intro to the younger Connor. Well, I guess in which case we should probably wrap up. So to finish, Ian, where can we find you online? Um, I have a website at www.mrcarapus.co.uk and yes, that's where I live online. And uh, Mr. Daniel, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you're not on Twitter, are you? I am, but I don't tweet. Uh, do you ever look at it? I do, do I look at it all lot. Okay. <laughs> but you never, you never contribute to anything. <laughs> I sit in the shadows <laughs> and watch everybody else. Like, uh, Rob, I've spent three hours doing your hire podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I contribute quite a lot of things. In great. If you want to follow me on Twitter, and I do tweet things, <laughs> not really good things, but I do tweet things, that's at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric dash shadows.com uh, we do a sister podcast called called movie robcast you can find that on twitter at movie robcast and you can listen to that wherever you listen to your podcasts and rob uh yeah you can find me online at uh at robert m wallace on twitter uh you can find my writings out of all the film sites at www.ofallthefilmsites.com and if you're so inclined um you can follow this podcast at time mcleod so <laughs> i guess that well thank you very much for listening and all that's left to say is... Time to